Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, you're listening to Ratchet and Respectable with Demetria L. Lucas. Let me tell you how I am fresh off a flight from D.C. to L.A.X. I'm a bit jet lagged. I had no plans to record a podcast today. I did after I woke up from my nap on the plane, make a list of things to talk about because I was going to record in the morning. I was like, let me try to stay on schedule for 2020. Let me at least try to do a podcast once a week. But y'all was going to get it like on Friday instead of Thursday. But then Duchess Meghan Markle and her husband, Prince Harry, announced we out. They're leaving the UK, at least part-time. They released a statement saying they were going to live between North America and the UK. North America, I think they mean Canada. I'm, I'm not really sure. I feel like if they were coming to the United States, they would have just said we're going to the US. They will be stepping back from their royal duties. They mentioned that they still supported the crown. And everyone's like, what? And I love it. And I'll tell you why. I love it for two different reasons. One, I love the love conquers all of it. If you've been following Meghan and Harry's story, Meghan's taken quite the beating in the UK press. Harry has some familiarity with that from the way that the press treated his mother, how the paparazzi killed his mother. They contributed to her death. He doesn't take the the harassment of his wife by the press lightly at all. He's released several strongly worded statements. He and Megan sued a couple publications, I want to say for publishing a private letter that she'd written to her father. It's been a mess, but he's been very outspoken over the treatment of his wife. There was a documentary last year when Megan and Harry were in Africa. Megan was visibly upset. She looks so sad. And we talked about that on the podcast. I think that was the episode People in Glass Houses. But they've been having a very rough time in the UK. I remember when that documentary came out, Wendy Williams, who was very nasty towards Megan about it, she had a solution. She was like, you know, if you guys are having such a hard time, you could always come to America. And I didn't agree with the rest of Wendy's sentiments on that, but I definitely agreed with her there. And I was like, look, you do have options. I mean, Megan is a sister girl from Compton. You can always come home. We've left the light on, sis. And lo and behold, Megan and Harry woke up one morning and they said, you know what? We do have options. We will exercise them. But I'm getting ahead of myself. The first reason that I'm so into this is because I love the, the togetherness of all of it. Like It just very much seems like our love is more important than anything else. You and I, as Stevie Wonder would say, you and I can conquer the world. And so they decided to do that together and not in the UK and not as principals in the royal family. It's very young hearts run free. It's very much me, you and Archie versus everybody. It's very love will conquer all. It's very I choose you, baby. I love it. It appeals to the latent romance book editor that still lives inside me. Like, I love romance. I love, I love love. I love the, I got options. 
So often we find ourselves in situations and we think, well, I have to because I said I would because of duty, because of obligation, because of fear. I'm afraid to stop doing this and start doing something else. I'll stick with the devil I know. But so often people sit in situations where they're so unhappy and they're just like, well, I don't have choices. Yeah, you do. They were in the UK. They're constantly complaining about the treatment that they're receiving. And then I guess one day they just decided we ain't got to take this shit. And so they decided not to take the shit. When you break it down like that, it seems very small, but it's amazing the number of people who don't do it. That's why I'm so chipper about it. And apparently the British tabloids are having a complete meltdown. I'm like, you treated this woman like trash. She decided she's tired of being treated like trash and she's going to take herself elsewhere. And then y'all still mad? I say that with a bit of, I just can't believe it in my voice, but the truth of it is, it's so common. How many of y'all have been in relationships where somebody has treated you terribly because they thought you would never leave? And then when you up and leave, you'd be all sorts of bitches and raggedy bitches and everything else. Like they will curse you out, curse you like you curse their mama because you've decided I will not put up with your poor treatment any further. It's a crazy phenomenon. People cannot fathom that you will not take their shit forever. Harry and Meghan was like, we ain't doing it. We out. I keep seeing people circulate memes from coming to America from when Prince Hakeem renounced his throne. They said that's what Harry's doing. Harry wasn't up for the throne. He's like fifth or sixth in the line of succession. Like he's never going to be king. And he didn't renounce his title. He just said he's not doing senior level duties anymore. He and Meghan are going to become financially independent, which I think Harry has some change. Diana came from good money. When she passed away, I think her money went to Harry. I think he has some money independent of the royal family. Let's also be clear. Meghan didn't show up broke either. She was a working actress on a widely watched show. And granted, like their money might be pennies in comparison to royal money. But please understand these people will not be penniless and broken in the street. I saw the cover of New York Post. They had Megan and Harry sitting on the couch looking like Al and Peg Bundy. Megan's hair was in rollers. Harry had a hairy chest sitting in a wife beater and some boxers. I'm like, y'all think they're going to be destitute just because they left the royal family? They're not going to have what they have as royals. That took centuries and the pillaging of many nations to accumulate. They won't have that. But they'll be fine. Honest to God, Megan can write a book about the last three years of her life. That's going to be an international bestseller. That'll be up there with Michelle Obama's book. I mean, if they really needed a quick coin, that's the easy way to get it. I'm just saying. This whole Megxit has tickled me to death. Sis was like, y'all are giving me shit and I don't have to take it. Madame gathered her fabric, gathered her man. They gathered their baby. They screamed deuces and left. Apparently, they didn't tell the royal family that they were leaving either because the official royal statement came out and they were like, yeah, so we've been in conversations about this and it's quite complicated and we haven't concluded those conversations yet. And I was like, oh, y'all didn't know they done. I mean, you can't stop them from leaving. If they got just a little bit of money, they can go elsewhere and figure it out. I mean... Tons of other people do it with less recognition and less brand appeal. Tina Turner left Ike with just her name. She figured it out. They'll be okay. I got faith in these crazy kids.
living on love dreams. Season three of The Crown just came out. It's a very well-written show. It's a good quality show. I'm going to need them to pick up the pace, though. We got to get through the Diana years, which that's going to be a shit show. We need to hurry up and get to the Meghan and Harry years. That will be some quality television right there. I'm just saying. I want to I wanna see a depiction of the first time that Meghan and Harry bring up the idea of, so this is not working for us and we're going to be taking our talents elsewhere. Mm-hmm. I'm happy for them. Megan said, I will not be abused. And Harry said, y'all will not abuse my wife. I saw some lady was like, Harry's doing all this for a piece of kitty cat. I'm like, really? She's a little more than a piece of kitty cat. I mean, she's his wife. It's not like he's doing this for some scallywag. Like, it's his wife. The mother of his child. If you wouldn't risk it all for your wife, why the hell are you married to her? That kind of like comes with the vows. Love, honor, respect, risk it all. That's kind of what you're doing when you sign a marriage license anyway. If you about to marry somebody who you don't feel like you can risk it all for, don't marry that mofo. Can we talk about writer's rooms for a minute? Your good friend Tyler Perry, he got up on social media and was like, yeah, I write everything myself. Sir, we knew that. That's not a revelation. That's also a problem that you should address. Tyler Perry, he has Tyler Perry Studios. I was very proud of him when he opened Tyler Perry Studios. Cousin Ava, director Ava Duvernay, she was there. She was walking around recording and taking pictures like she was a paid influencer at the event. I was all up in her IG stories. Like, oh my God, that's a whole White House. His studio lot from the pictures, the videos I saw, beautiful. The party, phenomenal. It was beautiful. I've been very critical of his, his creative output, but I immensely respect his business acumen. And I'm going to critique his lack of a writer room while also acknowledging that he's successful financially with his current business model in which he produces, directs, and writes everything. He doesn't have to pay other people. He doesn't have to pay out royalties. That's one of the ways that he's been able to become financially successful so quickly. I think he could be financially successful and critically acclaimed if he would allow people in the places where he falls short. Every time he puts out a film, it's trashed. Every single one of them. It's not his ideas are bad. The scope of subjects that he wants to cover, that's not bad. The audience that he's aiming to entertain, that's not bad. But you can make quality work. Acrimony was one of the worst films I've ever seen in my entire life. It was terrible. I was, it was on Netflix and I couldn't even get all the way through it. I was like, this is horrendous. It wasn't a bad premise for a film. It just could have benefited from professional writers. I know that there are a lot of people who support Tyler Perry who don't support Tyler Perry's work, who want to see him win, but just cannot sit through another film or TV show. People trash sisters. People trash The Oval. And they want to support it because there are so many black actors on screen working. 
dare I say, most black people want to support other black-ish. Like when I sit in the kitchen with my mom and she's flipping through stations, all she wants to see is something with black people. That's how I think most black people feel. We want to see reflections of ourselves. We want to see what other black people are creating. We want to support other black people who are working. Like we like that ish. And we want to do that for Tyler Perry. But the work is so terrible. You're just like, I want to scratch my eyes out. If Tyler Perry would hire good writers to create stronger scripts for his ideas, because the ideas aren't bad. If he would hire better writers, he could probably double his net worth. Like him saying like, oh, I write everything myself. Yeah, that's your shortcoming. That's your Achilles heel. You could let other people help and you would do so much better, sir. I want to support, but I can't support the current project. Like it's, it's not good. Some people like it. I don't care for it. But I would love if Tyler Perry put out work that I felt was quality because I would love to support Tyler Perry with my finances. I don't want to just applaud you. I would really like to reach in my bag and give you my money. I support what you're doing for black folks. I, I want to be a part of that. I want to pay for a movie ticket. I want to go to a stage play. I want to support but the quality of the work as it currently stands doesn't allow me to. And I know there are tons of people that feel the exact same way I do about Tyler Perry. He seems like a good dude. When he gets in front of a camera or a microphone, he says good things. That whole build your own table, I like that. I like it a lot. I'd like to help you build more tables. I would like to buy movie tickets and buy into the brand to help you sustain your Atlanta lot. Because I think that's a really dope thing. Let's get some writers, man. Let's get some writers. You got an audience that's big and supports you. I get it. You can have a bigger one. Make it good. Hire some writers. Can we talk about Lifetime? Which apparently is a new black channel. I was like, wait, what? I tuned in to watch part two of Surviving R. Kelly. Which initially I was like, I watched the first six hours of Surviving R. Kelly, gave me nightmares in the whole nine. I was like, this is horrific. This is, oh my God, this man is a monster. He's a predator. I could not for the life of me figure out, like, what else are they going to cover? Because you covered six hours worth of content before. What more could there possibly be? There was a lot left to say, actually. It filled in a lot of the questions that people had after part one. So I remember watching part one and then online people were like, okay, so R. Kelly did all of this. Where were these girls' parents? So they had a girl and her parents come on and the parents were like, I had a 15 year old. When she told me she was going to go to the mall with her friends or go sleep over at a friend's house, I legitimately thought that she was going to the mall with her friend or sleeping over at a friend's house. Why in my right mind would I think that my daughter is hanging out with a grown-ass man, a Grammy Award-winning international celebrity superstar? Like, that was just beyond my realm of understanding. I had no clue that my daughter was engaging in any way with R. Kelly. That's crazy. And I was like, oh, okay. And then the girl was like, yeah, so I would lie to my parents. So the parents are like, we're not negligent. 
We just genuinely thought that our teenage daughter was getting into teenage trouble. We didn't know she was involved with a grown-ass international superstar. Okay. Another question that came up after the last documentary, there were a lot of skeptics. They were like, so all these women say that R. Kelly harmed them. Why come no one pressed charges? So this documentary has women, once girls, who did press charges. And nothing came of it. This one woman, and she was a grown woman at the time. She was like 24, married, three kids. She was the hair braider. She cried, I want to say, for like a good 30 minutes. And that's with edits. I felt so bad for her. But she was like, R. Kelly forced me to perform oral sex on him. I went to the police when it happened. I reported what happened. The police investigated. And she was like, they decided not to press charges. There was another girl who pressed charges. She ended up settling. Did they say the amount? I want to say for like 250. There were other women who pressed charges. There was sort of funneled not to press criminal charges, but to go to civil route. There was this one woman, a lawyer who advertised on TV and she was kind of known as, you know, if you are underage and you're raped or assaulted by R. Kelly, like come to me. She would get you a cool 250. She takes a third of it. You take the rest. You sign an NDA and you move forward with your life. So many people knew what he was doing and were either turning the other way or making money off of it. They had these two women, these two blonde white girls. They really look like the Wayans when they're in character as white chicks. It was really kind of weird. But these two white chicks, sisters... And they were just like, yeah, so these women who are accusing R. Kelly, they just wanted to be famous. This is what they wanted all along. And so now they're accusing him as a way to become famous. One of the chicks sat bold-faced, bright-eyed, and appeared to be sober, was like, yeah, I saw the tape. It was consensual sex. I didn't see, I didn't see rape. I didn't see any force. I was like, are you out of your mind? I was... 21, 22, when that tape came out, they were selling DVDs for $10 or $15 on Canal Street in New York. If you're not familiar, that's where everybody goes to get their bootleg stuff. So your bootleg Louis Vuitton or Gucci or music. An album would drop or was supposed to drop on a Tuesday. Canal Street would have it Friday before for $5. As opposed to, I don't know, CDs were like $17.99 at one point. And you would go to Canal Street to get your cheap music and your DVDs. Not that I did that. Just, I'm just saying that's what people would do. But one of my friends had the R. Kelly tape. We were all at somebody's house. And we popped in the DVD. And when we heard that R. Kelly was on this tape with an underage girl, the assumption was... That it was a girl who was like really well developed and who could easily lie about her age. And she might have looked like she was 18 or 19, but she was actually 15 or 16. We just couldn't fathom that he was into girls. Women who were young is different than girls. And understand that I'm making the distinction as. He believed that she was legal but because she looked older than her age. So we put the tape in. The girl who 
everyone was making the big fuss about, and rightfully so, was allegedly 14. She looked younger. I think we got through two minutes of the tape and was like, turn this shit off. Like, uh-uh, uh-uh, uh-uh. Like, it looked like a girl, like a child. She hadn't gone through puberty yet. Everybody in the room was like, this shit's gross. And then we all like started drinking because it was like awkward and weird that like we watched a child sex tape. But this woman, this this white girl, I don't know where they got her from. She's an assistant to R. Kelly or a handler or something. But she was like, yeah, I saw consensual sex. And I was like, are you serious? That's a child. It's a gross motherfucker. They interviewed the women who were in part one about the aftermath of appearing in the documentary. They were like, oh yeah, R. Kelly's team went on a a total smear campaign for one of the girls. Like he released naked pictures and videos of her on the internet. Another girl, Geronda, she was the young lady, the underage girl who he met while he was on trial for having sex with underage girls. She said she was at the mall with like her kids shopping. She's like, some lady tried to fight her. She had to run out of the mall. The family of one of the girls was like, we had to move. We were being harassed so bad. And I was like, that's crazy. So when people ask, like, why don't people speak up? Why don't people file charges? Why don't people do X? Like, well, there were people who did. And naked pictures of them were released on the internet. They had to move from their houses. People tried to fight them at the mall. The police didn't take them seriously. That's a lot. And of course, because there's a second R. Kelly documentary, all the folks who were, you know, what about Weinstein? Well, there are multiple Weinstein documentaries. So if you're interested actually in what about Weinstein, there's plenty of material. If you're just using it as a deflection point, you should probably stop that. And in the same way that people said, why is there another surviving R. Kelly? He's already in jail. We don't need another surviving R. Kelly. Like, why more? You could ask that same question about Weinstein because Weinstein is currently on trial. His trial started in California this week. And I want to say the day his trial started, more charges were filed against him. And just further for the what about people, Lifetime is also doing a surviving Epstein documentary. I hope Prince Andrew, who was caught up in that somehow, is also discussed. So for all the people who are like, why they keep targeting these black men? I have no idea why you don't think that anyone of any color who has been accused by multiple people of harming, harassing, abusing, assaulting, raping women should not be worthy of an investigation or a documentary. I don't I don't know why that's who you choose to align yourselves with or to defend. That's weird to me, unless you're also a predator. But just FYI. Other predators are being discussed. Other non-black predators are often and commonly being discussed because you choose not to be in those spaces, probably because you're running around the internet trying to defend R. Kelly and Bill Cosby and Russell Simmons. You may have missed the white folks that are also being taken to task for their crime and harm against women. Just FYI. Also on Lifetime... They've got a new limited series called Hopelessly in Love. The first episode kicked off after the last episode of Surviving R. Kelly. And it was about Andre Risen and Lisa Lopez from TLC. I forgot all about that story. Lisa Lopez died in 
2002. I remember that house being burnt down. I remember the lyrics to many TLC songs because I love TLC. But somehow I'd missed out on the finer details of her relationship with Andre. I guess I just, 18 years ago, I was 22. I was in college, grad school. I was writing about music at the time. I just wasn't all up in their mix. I say all that to say, Andre Risen is a producer of the documentary to talk about his relationship with Left Eye. Apparently, folks knew far more about this because Lisa also did a VH1 documentary talking about some of it. So I was shocked to find out that the fire that burnt down his house was the second time that she had set some ish on fire in his house. The first time she burnt up a bunch of teddy bears in his bathtub, but the bathtub was marble. So it didn't whoosh up in flames. It just burned and then burned out. But the second time, he beat the shit out of her by everybody's account in the house because they weren't there alone. Her sister said he came home mad, beat the shit out of her, had two people in front of his door so the sister couldn't get in to the bedroom or whatever room to stop him from beating her. When he was done beating her, She goes and gets all of his shoes and puts them in the bathtub and lights that bitch on fire. When he remodeled the bathroom after the first time she burnt it up, he did it on the cheap. He didn't get a marble tub. He got a fiberglass tub. And that fireglass tub went up like whoosh. So the sister said they standing there watching the shoes burn. And then they see this rolling black smoke and they standing there coughing. And they were like, oh, shit. This is a little different than last time. So they ran out the house. Everybody that was in the house ran out the house, including Andre's sister. I'll talk about her in a second. Lisa gets outside, busts all the windows on Andre's cars, then gets in the car and drives off. Andre's house is on fire. It starts to rain. He gets on a motorcycle and goes looking for Lisa, who just burnt up his house. To make sure she's okay. And he says in the documentary. I'm trying to figure out. How I'm going to tell my mama what happened. Because it ain't like we fixing the breakup over this. She burnt his whole goddamn house down. And they wasn't fitting the breakup. I was done. Andre's sister. Literally. Andre and Lisa's relationship. Has been over for 20 years. At the time of filming. Lisa had been dead 18 whole years, years. Andre's sister is mad about Lisa like that chick slapped her in the mouth yesterday. She's on video, eyes bugging out, neck rolling, like heated about this chick. And then the sister is detailing events of of her interaction with Lisa. And she was like, yeah, I didn't like her. Like she just moved in the house one day, which was its own thing. Lisa had a habit of just moving into people's house and never leaving. She details some time that she cut up Lisa's clothes. And I was like, sister, is your brother your man? Like that's something that like psycho girlfriends do when they think their man is cheating on them. Your brother, like that's, that's your brother. Why are you cutting up his girlfriend's clothes? Like that's crazy. But she was hot. Like 
Like everything was fresh. And then I was thinking about it and I was like, you know what? If somebody tried to burn down a house while I was in it and put my life in danger, I might still be 38 hot with you 18 years later. Some other fun facts from the documentary. Apparently Left Eye and Tupac had a thing. I didn't have a clue they even knew each other. But her sister, was it her sister who described it? She was like, yeah, Andre had her heart, but Tupac had her soul. She thought Tupac was her soulmate, to which I wanted to know, can we have a list of women who Tupac was not their soulmate? Because I feel like he's Jada Pinkett Smith's soulmate. He was Kidada Jones' soulmate. Something happened with him and Faith Evans, maybe. There's a Faith and Biggie episode of Hopelessly in Love airing this Friday. I don't know what I'm going to do because I don't have cable, but I got to watch that when it airs. I feel like Tupac was everybody's soulmate. Like, make the make the list of people who were not Tupac's soulmate. That might be shorter than the list of people who are. But she dealt with Tupac, and Tupac and Andre were friends. At some point, by Andre's telling of events, Tupac pulled up to his house to pick up Left Eye, and they got in and went somewhere. And then Left Eye came back early and found him in the house with another woman, and I think that's when she burnt up them bears. You can't burn up somebody's house because you caught them cheating in the house. Like, I understand the the desire to do so, but that's not justifiable. I will say, Left Eye's sister was like, she never meant to burn down that house. And I think Left Eye said that when she was alive. She was like, I was just burning up his shoes. I wasn't trying to burn up his house. But if you beat my ass, there's no real limit on how I get to retaliate. And if I choose to retaliate by burning up all your shoes and it just so happens that your whole house catches on fire because you got a second tub for cheap. I'm not going to say left eye was right. But I'm not going to say left eye was wrong either. You beat her. Something was going to happen. You're going to have to get some get back for that. You can't just beat people and just be like, well, you got beat. No. You got options. One of the options that she chose to use was to light his shit on fire. And then the whole house just happened to whoosh up. But their relationship was toxic as hell. So apparently, Andre was friends with Tupac. And he was also friends with Suge Knight. Lisa, after she broke up with Andre, and after Tupac died, starts dating Suge Knight. They get Suge Knight on the phone in whatever correctional facility that he's caught up in, and he's up there gossiping like a 60s housewife with rollers in her hair. Like, he was just like, yeah, so Lisa would have told me. And I'm like, well, why would Lisa have told Shug Knight all the business? Then he was like, yeah, so Lisa showed up one day, and, like, there was a knock at the door, and it's all these boxes and all of her stuff. She just showed up, and she moved in, and then me and her was together. And I was like, wait, what? I vaguely recall that Lisa left TLC or was trying to do something independent of TLC and she was working with Shug Knight vaguely, but Lisa dating Shug Knight never heard it. I told you I went on a, an outing with Shug Knight. I was like 24, 25. Me and my friends went to breakfast with him and his friends in LA. A gentleman, a complete gentleman, sort of. Midway, you know what? I'm not going to tell the story. I wrote a whole chapter about it in a bell in Brooklyn. If you want to know all my business from my 20s, it's in that book. It was entertaining. I liked living it. Next topic. Oh, can we talk about the raggedy ass people talking about Blue Ivy? Meg the Stallion 
and Beyonce and Blue Ivy were hanging out somewhere. I have still not figured out where. Meg took a selfie with Bay and Blue. She uploaded it online. People ignored Beyonce. People ignored Meg. And everyone was like, oh my God, Blue! I remember Beyonce being on stage, pulling her jacket open and pointing to her pregnant tummy. And we were like, oh my God, Beyonce is pregnant. Oh my God. And that little bump is now eight years old. She's adorable. She's a beautiful little girl. People lost their goddamn minds talking about that child. Couple editors, one of them was from Vanity Fair. I don't remember the other one. But we're going back and forth talking about she's going to need plastic surgery. How Jay-Z's jeans are showing in her face. How unfortunate that was. I was like, are you serious? Like, this is an eight-year-old child you're discussing. It's a child. But they've been giving that baby the blues for her whole life. Remember there was some picture, Beyonce and Blue were on a playground in New York. And Blue's hair, she didn't have a headband on. She didn't have any bobbles or it wasn't pulled into puffs or anything. It was just free. And people used to give Beyonce the whole blues about why didn't she comb that baby's hair? Well, that baby's hair is halfway down her back now when it's straight. And when it's not, it's a big, fluffy, full, healthy looking afro. And it might just be that way because nobody was pulling the child's edges, trying to snatch her hair back into submission. She let the baby be. She was clean. She was groomed. Her hair was free. There's nothing wrong with free hair. It wasn't like she was at a photo shoot. She had a playground. What's your hair supposed to look like? She's perfectly fine. The child has never looked disheveled or undone. Not a day that we've seen her. People just like to pick on that child. Did you see that Essence headline about Blue? They posted the article on Facebook and the headline was Blue Ivy Carter's Silky Blowout is Proof that She's a Beauty Inspiration. Folks like to have a meltdown in their comments section. I worked at Essence forever and a day ago. It's still some of the same people working there. Half the editorial team has natural hair. I don't think that there's some bias towards straight hair. I think I know what they were trying to say, which was something positive. It just wasn't worded very well. The idea that after all this time of fluffy, curly, kinky coils and blue gets a silky blowout and now suddenly she's a beauty inspiration which is weird for an eight-year-old to be a beauty inspiration to a magazine whose core demo is in their 30s. Weird choice of words, but I give them the benefit of the doubt is that they were trying to say something positive about a little girl who so many people tend to say negative things about, that they quickly change that headline to something else. I think she's cute, whatever her hair is doing. I think she's a cute little girl, like her little face is cute. Her little mannerisms are cute. That one time she was in Paris, I want to say she was at the theater with Mama Tina. We heard her little voice in the background. Her little voice is cute. I think she's an adorable child. I don't understand why she gets so much flat. I guess because folks want her to look more like Beyonce. But I'm like, Beyonce doesn't even look like original Beyonce. We rarely see her without a full face or her natural hair, her natural shape. We don't really know what Beyonce looks like anymore. Blue is beautiful. Leave that baby alone. She ain't bothering nobody. She's eight. Speaking of little people, can we talk about Kevin Hart's documentary? That absolutely no one asked for and did him zero favors? Kevin Hart had an accident last year. His car flipped in LA. He had severe back injuries. People were very worried. Is Kevin Hart going to be all right? 
apparently Kevin Hart is just fine. Kevin Hart released a video on his Instagram about his healing process, about how he was so thankful to be healthy again for all the people that supported and stood by him. And physical therapy showed him looking like he was in a great deal of pain. And then it showed him fine. So I was like, good for him. Seems he's recovered. I'm sure there's still some lingering effects, but it seems overall he's recovered. He's healthy. Kevin Hart is not going to die on us. But he did this documentary on Netflix. And I expected it to be about the accident, his recovery, his family, being thankful, whatever come to Jesus moments he's had since you nearly died. I was interested in that. I like recovery stories. Kevin did a documentary about everything except the accident. He started off with the Oscar kerfluffle in which he was asked to host the Oscars, but then his old homophobic tweets came up. He refused to apologize appropriately, so that was taken away. He talks about his work ethic, talks about his history, his mom, his dad. He has extreme issues with his dad that are apparent to anyone not even a therapist or a psychologist, just to anyone who's observational. I'm like, yeah, like your dad was pretty messed up. You never really dealt with it. You've got residual issues from that. It's very normal, but sir, you should probably address it. His friends, his friend circle is very interesting. He had an ugly blow up with one of his friends. He was asking him like, do you own a home? Do you own a home? The implication being that if dude was not affiliated with Kevin, then he would be nothing. Dude tried to beat his ass off that. I wasn't even mad about it. It was a real asshole move. And then there's a great portion of the, the documentary where he talks about cheating on his wife, which he takes zero accountability for. He was like, oh, I went to Vegas and my friends weren't with me. And that's why that happened. You're a grown ass man who needs your friends present in order to not cheat on your wife. Is that what you're saying to the people? He didn't come across very good. He came across as somebody with a strong work ethic who's a complete douche in every other way. And, you know, I was watching the documentary and I thought at one point he talks about the cheating on his wife, which he was upset that everyone was talking about. And I was like, sir, did you watch the documentary that you produced and put out? You look terrible here. That's why people keep talking about it. His wife has a whole meltdown. And she was like, I'm happy. I'm over it. I'm happy. We've moved on. He's a better person. She's in the middle of a breakdown while she's saying it. And I was like, why did y'all put this part in the documentary? Like, I get people want to be transparent. People want to be honest about who they are. But absolutely no one was asking Kevin Hart, can you tell us more about cheating? Because we were looking at you as some sort of pillar of relationships. That was never the case. No one was talking about the Oscars and his homophobia. No one was talking about him cheating on his wife. We'd all moved on to Kevin Hart had this accident, which had its own fishy circumstances, but neither here nor there. Kevin Hart had this accident. He seems to have moved on. Good for Kevin Hart. We believe in second chances. Let's see what his creative output is going to be. That's all people were talking about. He put out this documentary and went and dragged up his old tea, and now everyone's looking at him crazy. I'm like, you did that to yourself, sir. No one asked for that documentary. No one was asking you about, you know what, you should really talk about. is your cheating and your homophobia. He did terrible with cleaning up the cheating. I was like, this man don't know accountability. It's not in him. Until he gets into that aforementioned argument with his boys on the plane. He apologized immediately. 
He sent a text, a group text. I apologize for my behavior. I'm sorry for the way I behave. As the leader of this group, I should have known better. You expected X from me. I didn't live up to that. In the future, going forward, I will do Y. I will not behave like this again. I am sorry. Fell full on the sword. Hit all the points that everyone talks about when you're supposed to be accountable. Apologize. State the behavior. State how you're going to change. Actually do it. Immediately. I was like, oh, so you know how to be accountable to your boys. You don't know how to be accountable to your wife. Okay. And then they detailed him going through the mess with the homophobia. I'm like, sir, the issue is not that you made the tweets. That's part of the issue. They were made very long ago. If you just step forward and say, hey, I was ignorant. I sounded like an asshole. I should have done better. I apologize for the harm I've caused. I will be better moving forward. That's all people want to know. I think the vast majority of people, when they see celebrities, have a basic understanding that they are human and they make mistakes. If your mistake is, you know, sex with an underage child, you got to take that L. But if your mistake is, at one point, I said extremely ignorant things 10 years ago. I have evolved since that time. And I'm apologizing for it. I think most people are reasonable enough to say, you know, I too have said stupid shit. I too would not like you to drag up my tweets from eight years ago. They probably won't be very PC. It's a different culture, a different level of ignorance, be honest. But if people can say, I said that then, I don't believe that now. I've been informed. I've been enlightened. I apologize for the harm I caused. Okay. Let's all move on. Eddie Murphy just did Saturday Night Live. People praised it. It was not my favorite. I'm a huge Eddie Murphy fan. I just... I don't think the characters that he did in the 80s that he updated on Saturday Night Live, I don't think they aged well. I'm going to stop short of calling it cooning and just call it a bit of pandering to white folks. I was a kid kid at the time Eddie Murphy was on Saturday Night Live. My friends who were teenagers and in their 20s loved it. They thought it was genius. They loved the Saturday Night Live episode. So take that for what it's worth. Eddie Murphy had made terrible jokes about gay folk, about HIV, AIDS. They went back and asked him. They said, Eddie Murphy, you've said some terrible things about gay folks and AIDS. And Eddie was like, yeah, I did. Some of that stuff was very hurtful. And I, I apologize for the hurt that I caused. I've had more time to think. And that's not what I believe now. And the story went away. You're asking a man over 50 what he said half a lifetime ago. I would like to hope that his thoughts had evolved. If you have the same mindset at 50 that you had at 20, something is wrong. That whole documentary, Kevin Hart should just scrub that from Netflix and pretend it didn't exist. Because I think a lot of people were just like, oh, you know, he works hard. That's what you know Kevin Hart for. He's funny. That's probably the second thing. Even if you don't love his work, like it's not Tyler Perry level where you're just like, oh, my God. You're just like, oh, I'm not, you know. Like Kevin Hart, but I don't go to Kevin Hart shows. Okay. Or I like his films, but I don't like his comedy. Or I like his comedy, but I don't like his films. That happens a lot with comedians. I don't particularly like Eddie Murphy's stand-up, but I love Eddie Murphy movies. Until Dave Chappelle's last show, I like Dave Chappelle in skits. I don't mind Dave Chappelle in movies, but I wasn't a big fan of Dave Chappelle's stand-up. I don't particularly like Chris Rock movies, but I love Chris Rock's stand-up. It's weird. Or it's not. Some people like me as a writer, but don't like me as a podcaster. Some people like me as a podcaster and a writer, but don't like me on video. People just have their preferences. Different platforms resonate different ways. But Kevin, that documentary, 
I think people who really like Kevin Hart still like Kevin Hart. And if you didn't like Kevin Hart, then you still don't like Kevin Hart. But if you were on the fence about Kevin Hart, I think it pushed you to the negative side. I don't know anyone who watched that documentary and was like, you know what? I like Kevin Hart so much more now. I did nothing for him. Hope it was a good chat. I guess we need to talk about the new season of Power. I'm about to spoil it. So if you haven't watched it, you should probably just cut me off now. Dre is dead. I was very Omarion. I don't feel no ways about it. I've wanted Dre to die for about two seasons now. It was a good death. He was a villain, so he went out in the worst of ways. They roasted his ass like chestnuts on an open fire. So not a Dre fan. But he didn't kill Ghost, who, by the way, is dead dead. But I don't know if that means James St. Patrick is dead. The showrunner, show creator, Courtney Kemp, did an interview with EW. And she was like, yeah, Ghost is dead. Like, dead dead. And I was like, but what does that mean? Because I feel like you be double speaking between, like, who is Ghost and who is Jamie and who is James. Like, is Ghost and James dead or just Ghost is dead? So he's not a drug dealer no more. But he could be, like, a father and a businessman. I don't know. I wouldn't really care if Ghost was dead either. He also deserved to die. But Dre didn't kill him. I'm still with the Tasha killed him theory. We'll see how that plays out. Apparently, there are four more episodes. And they're all told from different characters' perspective about the day that James died. Translation, we got about a month to go before we find out who shot this man. That's actually similar to what Dallas did. I think it was season two or three where they shot JR at the end. And then when the season came back, they waited until episode three to tell us who shot JR. And it was the most mundanest of people. When I first got into TV writing years ago, I went back and watched that show. It was one of the first episodic shows. It was a cultural phenomenon and it ran for a million seasons. They created a bunch of characters who had a million conflicts and they found ways to put them at odds for like a million seasons. It's a good show to watch if you're trying to learn screenwriting or storytelling. I think that's everything. We didn't talk about my warm Christmas trip. We can talk about that next week though. Kevin Hart, new season of Power... Golden Globes. Yeah, we don't have to save that. Beyonce didn't stand when Joker won an award. There were a couple articles about it. And I'm like, are you serious? Y'all be trying to find articles to write that involve Beyonce so you can put her name in the headline because she's automatic clickbait. Like, I'm a writer. I know the drill. Also never wrote about her when I really had nothing to say just to use her name. My Beyonce critiques were actually about Beyonce. But this whole, like, she didn't stand when so-and-so won an award. Maybe her feet hurt. Maybe she was tipsy. She brought her own champagne to the table. Maybe she didn't support the role. Maybe she did and just didn't feel like standing up. Maybe she had back spasms. I went to Black Girls Rock once. And I had these terrible back spasms, but I had like third row seats and I was like, I have to go to Black Girls Rock. So me and Redacted went and I was like, I'm just going to sit in this chair. I'm going to enjoy everything. It was the year they brought Michelle Obama out. I'm like, I can't not stand for my queen. So me and my back spasms stood and I was like, well, all right, well, I can sit here for the next two hours and ain't nobody else coming out. I got to stand up for it. Then Fantasia came out barefoot. I think that's when she did Mary Don't You Weep. 
And I was like, oh, Lord, it's Fanny. I nearly died. My back was killing me. My God. You want to know why I had back spasms? Stress. Anyway, I think that's everything. As always, thanks for listening. If you need your shenanigans during the week, if you're a person who prefers my writing to my speaking, you can always follow me on Instagram or Facebook or my blog, Demetria L. Lucas, at a dot com for the website. So yeah, we will talk soon. Okay, bye.